Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the never-ending story. What is the secret of this enchanted book? What wonders are hidden within its pages? What magical spell does it cast on all who read it? What is the secret of the never-ending story? But that's impossible! Enter a world where a young boy's imagination becomes a vivid reality. The world of Atreyu and Artax, the Rockbiter, and a good and kind gnome. A world that is vast and eternal, treacherous and dazzling, unforgettable and free. For anyone who's ever made a wish believed in a fantasy or had a dream this is the never-ending story we are back with another commissioned show that we probably wouldn't have done on our own but now that we're in i suspect it's going to be a great great pleasure this is the 1984 fantasy film directed by Wolfgang Peterson, fresh off his seminal German U-boat thriller, Das Boot. After that lengthy trial of tension, Peterson wanted something sweet and innocent, and he got it. And we did too. 84 was smack bang in the middle of a variety of cinematic forays into the realm of fantasy. 17 years before The Fellowship of the Ring finally delivered the first true epic, and Harry Potter first delivered an ongoing world that a studio would truly stick to, film after film. It was an era of light, one-off, creaky fantasy adventures spurred on by a general interest in mythological heroes' journeys that Star Wars presented. Prior to any kind of CG, this was a practical production all the way, with crazy costumes, creatures and sets, all designed to captivate and at once set free the imagination. This was based on the book The Unendlich Geschichte by German author Michael Ende, and sadly Ende ended up hating it. He was in fact revolted by the 1984 film, objected to the fact that it only represented the first half of his book, and deliberately repositioned some of the central philosophy to pull off an ending that would satisfy cinema audiences. He attempted to sue the studio to get the name changed, what the ending story? <laughs> before release, so that it would not be associated with his work. He ultimately failed and the film became a firm favourite with children of the 80s all the same. Six years later, the second half of his book was very, very loosely adapted into parts of the sequel, The Neverending Story Part 2, in 1990, starring Jonathan Brandis. So Ende presumably had either no say in any sequels or accepted a big fat check from the studio. The original plan was to build three separate stages for NeverEnding Story 2, having first and second units shooting simultaneously on the first two stages and having the effects done on the third. But the studio decided not to build the third stage at the last minute, because of money, forcing production to shoot first and second unit on the same stage at the same time. As labour rules regarding child actors limited their working schedules, the director of NeverEnding Story 2, the next chapter, George T. Miller, 
No, not George Miller. In fact, I think he's got the T in there to distinguish himself. No Fury Road coming out of this guy. They decided to only rehearse scenes once before filming and maximize the time with the children on set by shooting with as many as three cameras on every scene. This created a problem as Miller's fear of falling late wound up making the film so ahead of schedule that the effects team had not completed the necessary work for later scenes. And by jingo does it show. The sequel has a 14% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Richard Harrington of the Washington Post wrote, Unlike its predecessor, there are few effects in two worthy of being called special, and events unfold with uniform flatness. Silver City feels like Diet Oz. The Sorceress's castle is more hinted at than realised, and several new creatures are right out of late-night comedy sketches. Chris Hicks, writing for the Deseret News, was more kind in his review, writing that it would be enjoyable to children. I was 11 when I saw it. It was not enjoyable to me. The NeverEnding Story 3 Escape from Fantasia, also known as The NeverEnding Story 3 Return to Fantasia. Yep, she's holding her head in her hands and she has every right to. It was a second sequel in 1994. It starred a third Bastion actor, Free Willy's Jason James Richter, since Jonathan Brandis was too old yet again, as well as a young Jack Black as a school bully. Jason James Richter was too old, quite frankly. His yeah, voice was too deep him. in yeah. that trailer. He was like, oh, we got to say Fantasia. The spe- <laughs> I don't know why Scooby-Doo. The special creature effects were provided by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Sounds brilliant, right? I swear by the childlike empress that it isn't. The movie has no connection to the source material of the book beyond its usage of characters from it. Variety stated a never-ending story lives up to its title in the worst way possible. Ooh! With a third outing, a charmless, desperate reworking of the, fr- of the franchise that might as well just be subtitled Bastion Goes to High School. And yet its director, Peter McDonald, went on to amazing second unit work on Guardians of the Galaxy, The Bourne Ultimatum, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and he also worked on The Empire Strikes Back. It's almost as though Dieter Geisler, the producer of all three films, took such a front to being accused legally by the author of adapting his wonderful book into shallow, confused trash with that first film, which it clearly isn't, that he declared, You wanna see trash? Just watch! And over four years, he trundled out the two sequels that nobody wanted to exist in this state. And this leads me to wonder what would have happened if Michael Ende had accepted from the beginning that the original 1984 Wolfgang Peterson film, The NeverEnding Story, would not and could not be three hours long. That the structure of the book, much like The Hobbit, which gets name-checked in the film, by the way, fits neatly across two movies, not one. Not three. Not three, not one, but two. <laughs> if you two. give him one, if you give him three, he'll, he'll send, send them it back. back. And that if Michael Ende either gave the studio his blessing to make the first film as best they could, and then to do a follow-up if it was successful, then everybody would have been happy. The producer would not have wasted five years of his life addressing a petulant... Y- the producer would not have wasted five years of his life addressing a petulant lawsuit from an unreasonable author, and the original cast and maybe director could have been there and the right ages in, say, 1986 to film the follow-up, second half of the book, rather than doing the lame 90s thing of shoddy, straight-to-video quality sequels with whatever actors and creative teams could be assembled quickly on a budget. Or... Ende could have actually been there as a consultant if needed, someone who was there to help them with the conclusion of that first film. It is this archaic practice which I am glad we are, for the most part, World War Z, behind. Authors accepting that the film will almost always be bigger than the book, 
and that the film you support will send audiences to your text with hungry eyes. Studios need this level of respect for writers and vice versa. Above all, everybody needs to keep in mind that what they are creating could either ripple through entertainment history or fizzle out into the nostalgia critic's shit list, leaving the book all but forgotten outside of literary circles. And it's a great shame because by all accounts, both film and book had a great message for children as well as grown-ups. And tonight, we are going to explore the film. starts off with the never-ending story track by Lamal and it always struck me when I was a kid this seems like it cuts in in the middle like it's cutting to the next verse like you, you know it, it starts up and it's already playing you're picking up never-ending story while it's kind of in the middle but it's always in the middle there's no beginning middle and end possibly one of the failings of the film or possibly one of the strengths is that it does have a three-act structure it has a beginning middle and end but I suppose like with Star Wars, the story just is carrying on going from what it was before. Yeah, and I think part of the, the point is that it's a, meant to be a spiral. The section of the story that is Bastion's has a beginning, a middle and an end. The section of the story that is Atreus has a beginning, a middle and well, an end. technically it has a beginning, a middle and, well, that's another story. Well, yeah. That's not an end. <laughs> but the idea being that then the next person that picks it up, their story will have a beginning, a middle and an end. And then somebody yeah. else will pick it up and it'll carry on that way. It's concentric circles. But they didn't convey that hard enough in the film so much as sequel, maybe? Well, that's another story. Like the, This is, I think, what um, Michael Ende was uh, angriest about because he did something very meta with Bastion's story. Uh, so the overarching story of the film, The NeverEnding Story, is about... The film as we see it, and the book as we read it, is about a young boy named Bastian, uh, who lives in the, the regular world, uh, and uh, his mother has fairly recently, seemingly, died, leaving him alone with his father. Which immediately, when I saw it this time, reminded me of Super 8, a film that I absolutely adore, but uh, is about a young boy mourning the loss of his mother and the father who just doesn't know what to do with yeah, his son. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not explored anywhere near as much as it could have been. His father is very repressed about the death of presumably his wife and he effectively tries to smush Bastian's emotional responses whenever he starts to express them mm -hmm. by telling him to... Um, get his head out of the clouds and keep his feet firmly on the keep ground his feet on the ground and also yes we miss her but we've got to get up and get on with life there is no indication that bastian has had any opportunity to explore his grief yeah. over his mother at all and it seems like a guy like that the way he's portrayed a very short time on screen bastian's father is not the kind of guy who would have grieved 
over much. No, absolutely. Uh, at least uh, outwardly. I, although I did wonder, um, I looked it up and apparently it's it's just because it makes it taste better to some people, but he um, puts a, an egg in the mixer with some orange juice and I thought it was supposed to be some kind of hangover remedy, like he's drinking secretly and ah. not doing it in front so of the hang on, it makes eggs taste better to put them with orange juice no, no, or it no, makes it orange makes juice orange taste juice better to put it with eggs? To put egg in it, apparently. Gross. Some people hate it. Some people think it, it makes the orange juice taste a bit more like a smoothie and a bit less like you have that orange mm. zing to it. That's the best part of orange juice. What are you on about? But anyway... <laughs> Nice um, detail noticed, but not actually leading yeah, to anything. But yeah, didn't go anywhere, unfortunately. But either that, or he's a secret bodybuilder and, and not telling anybody. Oh yeah, he's rocky. Which looks unlikely, given that suit. The, the remark that caught my attention was the stop hiding from your problems and deal with the real world. Grief, sadness, anger, guilt, frustration are all part of the real world. Mm. And Bastian's father is quite clearly sweeping them wholesale under the carpet. Again, this is very close to my heart. New Century is about a world grieving. Mm. Like, grief is one of the major themes of the book, so obviously any story which has that at the core is going to immediately get my attention. Mm. Which it could be argued that most stories have some element of because everybody's lost something. Mm. So apparently he's been drawing unicorns at school, mm. and he's uh, been getting into trouble in class. And uh, his father's like, just, just stop, stop doing that. Pretend you're normal. Shape up, fly right. Mm-hmm. Keep your feet on the ground. He makes some reference about Brush your hair. if you like horses so much, um, what happened to riding lessons? It's like he's drawing unicorns. That's not the same thing. Can you get him a riding lesson on a unicorn? No. Then back off. Get him a writing lesson on a luck dragon later on. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, like for, for people who might accuse him of being a Mary Sue, that's how he manages to, uh, to ride uh, the luck dragon so well because he's had riding experience. She's looking at me funny. Everything must be flagged. We must know, especially if it's a woman, not at all if it's a boy. Anyway, um, so he's being chased and bullied, and uh, I think they um, shot a lot of the. Um, Oh, this was a German production, so a lot of the outdoor stuff was uh, in, in Munich. And uh, it, it, that never struck me when I was a kid. I just assumed it was New York like everywhere else. Mm. It, it does. It's been described as having quite European sensibilities. And it, it didn't make an awful lot of money in America uh, originally. And although it has become a, pretty much a cult classic since then. And the producers felt that the, the European tone was possibly why. Hmm. So I also wondered whether they uh, they had actually, in fact, dubbed it. Like, the whole thing was a German film and then they'd uh, um, added um, ADR'd uh, the uh, English dialogue on top. Mm-hmm. They have for some characters. Yeah. Uh, principally, I think, because they just didn't like their voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deep Roy turns up later on. And rather than having his squeaky little voice like this, which is his actual voice, I, I've, I met him. He's the guy who has the racing snail. Um, sweet, very kind gentleman. Um they they sort of dubbed it over with Rockbiter. Have you come along here to tell us about the nothing? And it's like, whoa. Where, where, where I come from in the north, we used to have exquisite gourmet rocks. Only now, now they're all gone. I know how it happened. 
happened. <laughs> I, I swear it wasn't me. <laughs> no. I think I know what it was. Tell us more. Near my home, there used to be a beautiful lake. But then, then it, it was gone. Did the lake dry up? No, it just wasn't there anymore. Nothing was there anymore. Not even a dried up lake. A hole? A hole would be something. No, it was nothing. And it got bigger and bigger. First, there was no lake anymore. And then finally, no rocks. Nighthawk, this could be serious. Rockbiter, what you have told us is also happening where I live in the West. A strange sort of nothing is destroying everything. Yes, we Nighthawks live in the South, and it's there too. So, it's, it's not just in our part of Fantasia? Actually, speaking of um, uh, ADR, the, um, when the puppeteers were doing their the Gamork and uh, Falcor, they had a dialogue coach come in and kind of show them how the mouth should be for every movement and every word so that they could make it match. With the Gamork, they actually had to work everything in, in uh, slow motion and then film it at double speed. Weirdo. Got any cash for us today? Let's get up! That escalated fast. Okay, so um, Bastion chased by horrible bullies who uh, want to keep throwing him in a dumpster or similarly branded German receptacle. Takes refuge in a bookshop. Yay! <laughs> of the kind that Sharon would immediately love to own. Okay, this is this is like a standard. I know it's a trope. It's also true. Bullied kids take refuge in bookstores and uh, libraries because books are like kryptonite to bullies. Yeah. They just they can't go near them. And the kids could sort of burst into the shop and, sh- and claim, Sanctuary! Absolutely. So uh, he meets this old man named Mr. Coriander, who's like, oh, get out of here, you little bug lover. You don't like books. We don't have things with pops and whistles. And it's kind of a, a reverse psychology challenge to him. So, no, 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 you tell me if you like books. Mm. And Bastian angrily retorts that he's read The Lord of the Rings and uh, Treasure Island and a whole bunch of other older ass adventure books classics yeah, yeah absolutely um although a bit of anti-video game propaganda going on here oh yeah you hear what i said boy uh, oh, so- you're hiding aren't you no i was just the video arcade is down the street here we just sell small rectangular objects they're called books they require a little effort on your part and make no beep, 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 beeps on your way please i know books I have 186 of them at home. Ah, comic books. No, I've read Treasure Island, The Last of the Mohicans, Wizard of Oz, Lord of the Rings, 20,000 Leagues on the Sea, Tarzan. There's a thing in most media, especially when uh, a version is new, where uh, films say talk about the magic of reading and that books are important. Books never say that films are good, and both of them say that TV is bad. Because TV is the one thing that will distract kids from either films or books. And then when, when video games came along, they were like, oh, we don't know about these things. And we're still waiting really on, on movies, apart from, I suppose, Ready Player One. But even Ready Player One said, ah, yeah, but you still should get out in the real world. Get yourself a girlfriend, mm. as opposed to... Of course, if you go back further than that, you've got um, 
people in the what 17th 18th century saying oh novels they're gonna corrupt your mind you don't want to <laughs> you want to go to the theater like a normal person <laughs> okay so uh the, oh, mr coriander's reading a book the never-ending story says this is a special book it's very dangerous you never you never lived a story before kid oh what's that the phone's ringing runs off and then i'm needed in the basement <laughs> His ruse pays off and Bastian nicks the book, leaving a a little note saying he's going to return it. What's that book about? Oh, this is something special. Well, what is it? Look, your books are safe. By reading them, you get to become Tarzan. Or Robinson Crusoe. But that's what I like about him. Ah, but afterwards you get to be a little boy again. What? What do you mean? Listen. Have you ever been Captain Nemo, trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid is attacking you? Yes. Weren't you afraid you couldn't escape? But it's only a story. That's what I'm talking about. The ones you read are safe. And that one isn't? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But you just said it was... But that got me thinking, and I checked a couple of uh, theories online. I was like, hang on a second. What... I mean, like, what what do people do on YouTube? They read far too fucking much into things. And you have to ask, if you're going to be going down that road, what was Mr. Coriander to Fantasia, this mystery land, since Bastion ends up reshaping it himself and kind of gets incorporated into the story? That suggests, by uh, process of elimination, that uh, uh, Coriander has been in the story himself. So does the nothing come from him or his his trying to draw away from the book and he now has to find a new bearer for the book really quickly or it'll consume him? Because as it turns out later on in the, in the book, whenever you make a wish on the Orin to wish for new things, it takes some of your memories. Oh yeah, she's making a face. The Orin is some kind of amulet thing that sucks bits of you out to redistribute them into the book. See. That's a cursed book right there. It is a bit. And I suppose if it's the never-ending story, and like I said before, it's uh, concentric circles of uh, of tales of the kids that are involved in this book, mm-hmm. um, then maybe Coriander as a child, maybe this nothing comes round every now and again and Coriander had to uh, reawaken Fantasia himself and was then made the guardian of the book, lost enough of his memory that he was spent... Uh, doomed to spend the rest of his life selling books to kids that didn't want them and just to sit there with the never-ending story and wait for an imaginative enough child that he could reinvigorate it again because the nothing was coming again. I must give you my burden. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Bastion's stuck with that book now. He's got to hang on to it until the nothing starts to sneak in at the edges again and then he's got to find another kid to pass it on to. The symbol of the Orin is not concentric circles so much as a, s- a pair of snakes twisted around each other intertwined and eating each other's tails which has an infinity element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, it's, it's That's an expanded version of the Ouroboros, isn't it? Yeah. The, the way the book is conveyed everybody who reads it ends up 
being incorporated into the story. Now, one can only assume that by process of elimination, some people are entirely consumed by the story. She's always hungry. She always needs to feed. As the book thirsts for more input, for more creativity. Now, on the flip side, on the other side, if you aren't going to read too much into it, it is a wonderful little metaphor for imagination, and the nothing is an absence of that imagination, and uh, this land is being threatened by a great darkness as kids around the world get lost in video games and don't need imagination anymore. They don't read anymore, they, they, and, and uh, the world of, that Fantasia isn't necessarily contained within the book, that Fantasia is a parallel with every land, every uh, fictional world, mm -hmm. and that they require humans to not only create them, but to maintain them mm -hmm. by reading about them, by imagining them. There is, that they are fueled by our thoughts. Yeah, there is definitely a strong parallel between this and Labyrinth. Um, you've got the framing device of the child who escapes into the fantasy world, because mm. the real world is, uh, is traumatic to them for some reason. Um, and they both go through books. Sarah's got her play and, mm -hmm. and Bastian has the never-ending story. But in the labyrinth, it's not the fantasy world that's threatened. It's the it's the real world. Yeah. And thinking about it, uh, you could say that, you know, film sparked people's imagination, but film and TV and video games are different from literature in that um, because prose is so basic and there on the page it can describe something to you but you have to do the mental legwork of creating it in your mind whereas on film they show it to you yeah, don't tell a film sparks the imagination and then completes the circle yeah um with a book it's almost as though it's incomplete you have to expand it yourself if you want to yeah so uh, Bastian goes to school, looks, peeks in on his class and decides, sod that, I'm not going to go do maths, uh, and uh, uh, retires upstairs to the uh, school's attic to read the entirety of the never-ending story in one go. Which is kind of exciting if you're a kid. You're like, you know, bunking off class and actually just uh, reading instead. That, that feels like a, a well-spent afternoon and evening. Although... Much like in The Lady in White, he's going to be locked in that school all night. Like, he can't get out. They never, I mean, he, he does because he gets into his book and then flies, yeah. But there's no scene where Bastian's like, right, I need to get home and his father being worried sick. Mm. Well, he's got the key to the attic. Yeah, but he can't get out of the front door yeah, of the school. I suppose not. It'd be padlocked from the outside. Mm. So Coriander's um, earlier statements on, oh, we don't have any video games here, it struck me as kind of gatekeepy. Like, you have to prove that you're, um, that, you know, into to proper literature. Which, since we saw this just before we saw uh, Ready Player One together, um, it kind of it has that same sort of ring of, uh, ah, okay, fine. What's Halliday's favourite music video? What's his favourite video game? And uh, you, you kind of have to prove within that world that you know a hell of a lot about this one person, whereas here it's... Uh, uh, coriander saying you know we can't we aren't just going to make room for people who just like literature a bit you have to have actually put in the hours you have to be uh not a noob you mm. have to be leaked that did remind me a little bit of um english degree 
work where it's like there's going to be references in here we haven't got the time to explain them all to you mm. you'd better get them but i suppose that is just the test that he uh, makes every kid who wanders into his shop go, go through before he gives them this parasitic book well if the purpose is to pass the book on to somebody who can save fantasia from the nothing by providing it with an injection of imagination yeah. he's got to make sure they've got the imagination to be able to do to that pass the trial mm. yeah Okay. Well, as Bastian starts reading, there is a skull just over his right shoulder. It's a nice bit of set dressing. It, mm. uh, it suggests that there is, in fact, quite a lot of danger in the book. It could even be interpreted that Bastian will have the meat sucked off his bones if he doesn't watch out. That whole attic is full of dead things. Yes. It's got uh, stuffed animals and there's a human skeleton and there's ancient suits of armor that were presumably used once but have now been about why there's suits of armor and stuffed animals in a school attic i have no idea what was this school before it was a school (laughs) a very enthusiastic taxidermists maybe Um, it's also the drama club attic feasibly so but it it the skull was for performances of hamlet Mm. but it does have that sense of he's surrounded by something that is frozen and dying and since the purpose of him going into the story is to reawaken it that seems like an appropriate thing to go through on the doorstep yeah so we begin like the actual story within the story in the dark howling forest and uh, we are introduced to Rockbiter, who's this giant robbery guy, and uh, the Nighthob, and the, the little man with his racing snail, and the Nighthob's bat. And they're all just these kind of greebly guys who seem a little bit like hobbitish, like they are our way into Fantasia, and then they take us to the Ivory Tower, and then they take no further part in proceedings. Mm. They do seem very specifically to be there to represent children's fantasy they were reminiscent of uh, lord of the rings of as you say the hobbit there's bits of narnia in there they feel a bit alice in wonderlandy and they they converse and there's a lot of blue screen stuff going on and uh reams of practical effects which i find incredibly charming it uh, ha- the, the film probably has shares the most of a look with is legend there's, a, in fact, a point where Atreyu stops for a bite to eat with his horse later on, and he appears to have walked onto the set of Legend. Yeah, it does have that slight detachment about mm. it, which Willow and, and Labyrinth really don't have. You you really feel that you're in those movies, whereas mm. this is a bit more, there's a lens to it. Yeah. However, Legend, uh, I've never particularly liked. It always felt sort of cold and slightly removed, mm. and... Um, there's a, a genuinely unsettling feel to it. It's, it's got some great moments, and of course Tim Curry is fantastic, but it, it doesn't function in the same way as a fantasy to, as something like Neverending Story or my personal favourite of these uh, ones, Labyrinth, and I think Willow has to rank alongside that as well. Legend lacks humour. Oh, God, That's yes. That's part of its problem. It, it's very self-serious. Yeah, whereas Labyrinth is very, very funny. Mm. And uh, Willow is hilarious. Neverending Story isn't massively going out of its way to be funny. There are a couple of amusing bits, but Mm. uh, again, it it sort of takes its premise very seriously. There's a purity to that. Uh, That that doesn't necessarily mean that that Legend doesn't also have a purity to it. But Legend occasionally feels like it was made only for adults and that any kids watching it probably wandered into the wrong cinema. Yeah. Oh, and it has that Tangerine Dream soundtrack, which 
I, uh, Tangerine Dream are like the only film composers I genuinely don't like. Their Risky Business score is as rotten as that movie. Don't at me, legend lovers. Kroll's better. But the filmmakers of Neverending Story, when you see them in interviews, speak with utter distaste for CG. They, were, they, they, they talk of, you know, well, these days, you can just do anything with computer, but those days we had to build it all. That is the remark of somebody who has never been called <laughs> upon to make anything with a computer. I, I do get what they mean, um, but I, I've, I've always um, loved the idea of... Uh, being absolutely the best of what you can do mm. on each discipline. Yeah. I, I think the difference is that with practical, it's harder to make it shit and it still be acceptable. Whereas with computer animation, there's some horrible stuff out there that's yeah. obviously been done with laziness and no particular Or in a rush, specifically. Yeah. Like, we've got to get this water done, just chuck it out there, Indeed. we've got a day. And you, you really can't do that with a practical effect because it's just going to end up being a sock. I mean, you can. It has been done. There's plenty of bad practical effects out there, but people who fabricate practical effects tend to put a, a lot of physical effort into it, like... Uh, it's possible just that the uh, the difference when you're sort of crafting a costume or, or, or a creature is that you can spend an extra night there and make it look really fantastic, which might be impossible with uh, with, with CG, depending on your rendering platforms. Like, mm. you might not even be able to make fire look that particularly good. Yeah. yeah. Do you think with um, the computer effects as well, there's a bit of a tendency to think, well, anybody can do this, just... Yeah, I mean, like specifically for people who um, work in, in models, just to be able to go, well, they just get in these these new techie kids and they just click with their mouse button and say, create racing snail, click on yes, and and then the the effect is immediately just put out there. This was the uh, like I said, the, the the early to mid eighties. And some of the absolute best practical effects we would ever see in cinema were being, you know, put to screen. Neverending Story doesn't necessarily have some of the best, but it has an incredible level of charm to everything. Mm. The people involved really committed to uh, to crafting this world, and they gave it a lot of they injected a lot of personality into every instance that they had to give us. It also it's such a refreshingly short film mm. that they don't have to belabor any one effect for too long. I think the the only one that really gets like a lot of innings is the uh, Falcor head while uh, it's it's being flown around. Mm. But the music. Do you have it, any idea how long it took to stitch all their hair in? They're going to show that thing, damn it! Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like Falcor is their trump card. They I hate that fucking guy. He's ruined everything. Falcor is their ace in the hole. Uh, he has. He's the thing that no other film has, and they knew it when they uh, when they were putting this together. They deliberately went for a Chinese dragon effect, uh, made him very uh, dog-like, and uh, being given uh, a human voice and to be able to converse with the hero made him much more personality-filled than most on-screen dragons, mm. who just tend to be creatures even today. Yeah. But the practical set for the uh, forest has a particular charm to it because it's clearly just sort of made out of these gnarled sticks and they've they've kind of like thrown it together. So it feels like it's very much studio bound if you're familiar with, with what that looks like. 
for some reason, they get away with it here in a way that, that Weta don't quite get away with, with Fangorn Forest, as opposed to a lot of the uh, outdoor stuff shot for Lothlorien and Rivendell is clearly, it's a studio and it, they've, they've actually, they brought in trees and they sort of moved things around. So it feels kind of, fake isn't the word, it, it feels fantastical and for some reason in Neverending Story, the difference is that you've got only fantastical creatures in this forest, so it feels like they're at home. Whereas Fangorn, you've got um, Aragorn, Gimli, and uh, Legolas meeting Gandalf. They're all three very serious adult actors, and they're surrounded by this kind of quaint, pretend forest. And it doesn't sell so much. It doesn't gel so much. It feels like... um, the further away from Fellowship of the Ring Peter Jackson gets, the more he deals with um, fabricated and less natural habitats. After they got out of Fangorn, they then went across the plains of Rohan to like, the, one of the most naturalistic places that they uh, went to in the whole Lord of the Rings. They had to add the least amount to those prairies to make them feel like actual parts of Rohan. But... Return of the Kings, a lot more CG heavy, and then all of those Hobbit movies have got a lot more sort of, you know, built sets rather than uh, outdoor locations. But it it feels like if they'd gone for too many outdoor locations on this one, it wouldn't quite have had that storybook quality. Mm. Everything does feel that little bit contained, doesn't it? Which which makes sense for something that takes place on the pages of a book. Mm. So then the night hob flies off because they, um, the rockbiter tells the, his new friends about the nothing that uh, has started to erode all the various corners of Fantasia, and this is where they lay down the premise of like something's eating our world. What could it be? And that later gets explained as despair mm. and the. The, the absence of imagination is doing this, and the the black cloud that is the nothing is almost in direct contrast to uh, the the dreams that Bastion's having at the very beginning of the film over the intro sequence. You've got those gorgeous Renaissance painting clouds flowing over everything, pink and blue and fluffy and white. And um, like I say, that's the, the antithesis of this dark, stormy nothing that's being pushed in front of everything else. <laughs> Exhort to the Ivory Tower, where we hear spoken of the childlike Empress, but she doesn't make an appearance. And we are told by her uh, um, chief advisor that she's dying, and a bunch of 
odd creatures gathered around are like, oh, what shall we do about this? And then they uh, bring the their finest warrior, Atreyu, to step forward. And he's this little kid. And you're like, and no, everyone's like, get out of here, kid. And he's like, well, I'm the best warrior you guys have got right now. So come on. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice little empowering like way of saying that like, you kids watching the film, you're the ones that are important here. Well, very, it's speaking to you. Very specifically, this is about the idea that children will save what grown-ups in their cynicism and despair will destroy. You've got the Empress who is eternally childlike. You've got Atreyu who everybody expects to be an adult warrior and isn't. And then you've got Bastion who's controlling the whole thing. Hmm. And uh, that's obviously an evergreen concept which we've discussed repeatedly in, in with recent releases. Hmm. This particular... Uh, you know, you guys are going to save the world, was being directed at Generation X. Generation X were and still are kind of jaded as a generation. Mm. Not as much as the uh, the boomers, but um, all of those uh, complaint um, articles about uh, uh, millennials ruining this, that and the other, a lot of them are written by Gen Xers. Mm. It's, it's not just the 60-year-olds writing right now. That's true, actually. I, I keep... You've ruined napkins! I keep thinking... Sincerely, a 40-year-old. Well, indeed. Um, the whole thing about millennials are the first generation who are financially worse off than their parents. Gen Xers had to watch that coming. Mm. And the people who are in the latter years of Gen X, ourselves included, we are kind of one foot in the millennial camp. So we've got a lot of their drawbacks. It's easy to see where the cynicism comes The worst of all worlds. From. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we, we don't get the benefits of the boomers, and we do get the shitty end of the stick that the millennials have got stuck with. So, <laughs> yeah, hey. But yes, that theme of the kids are going to save the world is something that we do see recur in fantasy a lot. The the innocent, the, the naive, the people that you think are incapable of anything. They're the ones that are going to pull it all together in the end. Uh, also, small design point on the ivory tower. Its base is um, the symbol of the triple goddess, the Celtic spiral. When do I begin? <laughs> now, and you must hurry, Atreyu. But nothing grows stronger every day. Take this. The He wears the orange. Speaks for the Empress. It will guide and protect you.
Uh, Wolfgang Peterson said of Noah Hathaway, who plays Atreyu, I sought a good-looking boy of athletic build with the quality of fierce determination. The role requires the character to ride a horse expertly, fly on the back of the dragon, struggle through a swamp, clamber over rocks, and face a ferocious wolf vampire. Hathaway observed, well, what it was, Wolfgang Peterson was notorious for his actors doing their own stunts. Audiences are very savvy. You can cut away and show the back of somebody and show the stuntman doing their stunt, and everybody knows that. So he wants his actors to do as much as they can for the realism of the movie. Accidents happen and actors aren't stuntmen. That's why they have stuntmen, because if somebody gets hurt, they're expendable. And some of the times they're just more careful. I just ended up paying. Jesus. So that suggests that uh, he... uh, had a few near injuries on the actual filming then. He was also in another film that we've already covered. Uh, he was Harry Potter Jr. in Troll, the original Troll, not Troll 2. So it's an unusual move because we've technically got two heroes running parallel in this story. We've got one kid in a very uh, inactive role, simply reading a book, and the other kid doing all the uh, grunt work. And they're not actually connected, uh, at least until later on. And then their later on connection they kind of wobble it and fudge it, and they never they never make it clear that uh, uh, Atreyu is the avatar for um, Bastion in this. In fact, that doesn't seem to be the intention at all, aside from the dalliance with uh, uh, looking into the mirror and facing yourself. Mm. Although you say they never make it clear, they never state it explicitly, but that was my first assumption when... Uh, I mean, I know I've seen it before, so possibly I was drawing on um, my memory of how it progressed, but the, the note I put down was that um, Bastion... The, the meaning of his name, if you look at the word bastion, it's a thing or person regarded as upholding or defending an attitude or principle. Mm. And Sebastian, which it can also be short for, is the patron saint of soldiers. So Bastion himself is a warrior. It's just that he has to manifest it through Atreyu. I've only ever heard Bastion um, used in that context as a last bastion, the, uh, the the last line of defense against something that is encroaching and, and is a massive threat. So yeah. I've always felt that was a, uh, an on-the-nose but extremely appropriate child name uh, in, in a film like this. Yeah, but it specifically refers to the part of the fortress that sort of sits at angles to the wall so you can sit behind it and fire in different directions. Yeah. I've been investigating the soundtrack for this particular podcast and uh, German composer Klaus Doldinger Uh, composed the entire score for the German release. And for the American release, they brought in Giorgio Moroder, uh, most famous probably in America for the Top Gun score. Also Flashdance and Electric Dreams. He composed the never-ending story theme uh, sung by Lamal uh, at the beginning, you know, the the one with lyrics. Uh, The German version by uh, Klaus has a completely different, just entirely instrumental track. Moroder recomposed the Ivory Tower theme, made it a little bit punchier. He composed the sad, dramatic theme when Artax dies uh, in the Swamps of Sadness. He did Sleepy Dragon when Atreyu meets Falcor for the first time. And he did the ruined landscape just before they meet the Gamork. But everything else in this film was Klaus Doldinger. And if you uh, search around, you can actually find his original German score on uh, YouTube or available on CD. A lot of the themes you'll recognise, but being slightly differently orchestrated. So here is Klaus's original intro music that would have played instead of the never-ending story bit over the clouds at the beginning. For German audiences excited to see one of their homeland books adapted. (laughs) 
So Atreyu gallops, and he's given chase by the Gamork, who is the servant of the nothing, and he's a wolf, puppet wolf, but with a uh, cold, nearly human intelligence. And the Gamork really stuck with me. Like, there's a, you know, he's, he's in this scene, briefly shown at the end of the Swamps of Sadness sequence, and then afterwards at the city on the edge of the world, the major showdown. The Gamork, the idea of being pursued by a wolf. We cut to scenes which Atreyu had been in before, and we, we get to run through this familiar territory through the eyes of the wolf. And it's, it's really unnerving. And there's this constant state of a ticking clock and, and this thing's closing in all the time. And uh, that, that was a, you know, an excellent element of uh, drama in the film. It doesn't resolve in exactly the same way in the uh, book, mm. though it's similar. The, the process of Atreyu going through the swamps of sadness, and it is all set up like a, a sort of Pilgrim's Progress style quest that he has to go through all these elements that are representative of something. Um, this was the most obvious one to connect him with Bastion for me because it, it's like this is what he's been fighting with, is the grief over his mother that has the potential to drag him down but ultimately he's a child children do get through grief it's hard and it has to be handled well or ideally it should be handled well but it's something that they can recover from and they have other elements of their life that that, that will still take their attention it's not as if they're completely submerged by it so I thought the, the way they have um Atreyu's anger being what gets him through the swamp um, and his that he is being supported by Artax. Um, if you look at when he's insisting that Artax needs to come out of the water and Artax can't move, Atreyu's not really been in the swamp at that point. Artax has been keeping him out of it. It's Artax that's been taking all of the, the sludge, as it were. And it kind of seemed to me that that's Bastion's unicorns. That's the drawing is what keeps him out of the murk. And when that is taken away from him, then the murk starts to actually get on him and swallow him down a little bit. And that's the point at which Atreyu starts to feel like maybe it's time to quit as well. It's actually kind of fantastic exemplifying a depression as a swamp. Specifically, this black, you know, nasty-looking mire. There's nothing really growing there. It's it's surrounded by dead wood and mist. It's a it's a graveyard. When you are held in place by depression, you and you do start to descend. It does take astonishing levels of strength to not only pull yourself out but to keep going. It's not something that like. Depression is something that people who don't suffer from it consider to be just being very sad. A, l- a lot of the time it can be something that's just always there, always pulling you down and requires a level of self-control to be able to walk above or just on the surface of. But there's always that thread of being sucked under. Mm. And that what you said about having the strength to pull yourself out of it, I'm guessing you don't mean you know, snap out of it and it's not there anymore. It's yeah. the strength to keep going even though it is still there. It's more specifically a strength to to reclaim your direction. Yeah. A lot of the time it's not being really, really sad. 
it's just not wanting to do anything. Not fe- like feeling like, and this is the worst thing, especially if you're a creator, feeling like whatever you do is going to kind of amount to nothing. So what's the point? Mm, yeah, sparkless. Yeah. And and part of it, the way this progresses as well, that Atreyu is going is has to fight his way through this swamp to get to what he believes will be a source of wisdom. But when he gets to Mola, she's not really wise. She's just she's all knowing, but she's kind of cynical with it, and it hasn't, it doesn't lend her any great deep spiritual understanding of anything. She just knows stuff, but it's meaningless to yeah. her. Um, and that can be something that I think can throw people about depression as well. That even when it's gone, it's still hanging there. It still has an impact on everything that you do after it once it's passed away. And especially for people where it isn't just a one-off thing, it keeps coming back over and over and over again. Mauler is an example of the kind of person who is clever enough to know that everything is pointless but not wise enough to see beyond that. If your worldview is, what's the point in doing anything, because everything's going to rot, everything's going to fold in on itself, if the universe lasts to this stage, it will eventually decay and nothing will have any meaning to it. To be able to be so smart that you can see that far forwards, and so smart that you utterly despair and embrace nihilism, it can make you quite dangerous to other people because you become a cause of depression and despair in others with this worldview. And if you produce art that deals with this, you've got to be really careful to flag a way through for just regular people who might misinterpret what they're being sold and get hooked on the despair. Because otherwise you could wind up showing them the way through and they won't even be able to see it because they will be attuned only to the initial lesson. The other thing that's achieved with Mauler's scene is there's a lot of imagery in this where they play with the idea of big and small. The opening scenes with the rock biter and um, the the guy on the racing snail and the the brownie on the bat, as I will eternally call him. Nighthob. Yeah. the, the way you, it cuts back and forward, it's almost impossible to ever get an idea of exactly how big they are because you never see them in the same frame. It's only when you see them from a distance that you, or, or they're in contact with something else that falls in between them. Well, you do see them sharing the same frame in that the little people are in the foreground of the rock biters taking up all this massive room at the back. Yeah, but from that angle, the screen's not really big enough to get a, a proper idea mm. of, of what the, the sizing is like. And yeah. when Atreyu meets Mauler... You've got that side view to show the, the, the size of her head. Exactly. and But she's so much more massive than he was expecting her to be. And there's this sort of constant through line of you, you come across something. And, and this is what it's like when you're a kid and you're encountering new things. You get excited about meeting something or someone or coming across a new experience and then it turns out to be so much bigger than you thought it was going to be. And that can be quite terrifying. And it's almost like you have to constantly double-hand it. I I want this thing, but I'm afraid of this thing. So where do we go from there? Mm 
And as we've said, she's also a massive letdown in that she's apparently purported to be the wisest being on the planet and she doesn't really give a fuck about anything. Mm. And she's allergic to humans, which makes her pretty useless. Mm. Before that, the we really undersold the importance of the death of Artax. The, uh, the horse sinks into the mire and Atreyu begs him to, uh, to push himself out. And he doesn't. And we're stuck with Hathaway screaming at this horse. And the music gets sad, and you're, you know, well aware of the fact. And there's some great horse acting as well. You know, that that horse really does seem like he's given up. I cry every time. Everyone knew that whoever let the sadness overtake him would sink into the swamp. Come on, Artex. What's the matter? What's wrong? It's because it's the death of something innocent that shouldn't happen. Well, it's it's specifically, I mean, a horse represents its forward motion, its inner power and strength. And also, it's, generally speaking, horses in stories are like, they're dedicated as dogs are. There's an ability to them. And they, they lend their strength to you. Hmm. And... The idea that something that's giving you this level of strength that you just don't have on your own. It's not just the loss of the friend, it's not just the loss of the, the, the creature that's been your companion. It's everything they brought to you that you now no longer have. Um, and especially from a, a, an American perspective, that sort of Old West thing of if you steal someone's horse, you might as well kill the them because sentence, you're, you're yeah. stranding them out in the middle of nowhere. But as with Jurassic Park, where the dinosaurs are sold to us through the expressions and reactions of the humans, uh, Noah Hathaway's performance in the swamps where he's screaming at the horse really sells that scene. Mm. If he was just in a petulant rage, uh, and if he came off as childish rather than frantic... It wouldn't be half as powerful, but it is. Yeah, there's also the positioning of it in the story. If it was more towards the end, it 
it might not be so unexpected. But the, I mean, the, I remember the first time I ever saw it, I, I was just like, well, obviously he's going to get out. The story's only just started. They can't possibly kill somebody off immediately. Um, that's it's. He's got to get out. No, no, he's just keep trying. No, 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 he will. He will get out. He'll get out. He'll get out, won't he? Tell me he's going to get out. And then it cuts to, to he's not there anymore. And Exactly, it cuts to part of the reason that that scene really works is that at the absolute peak of drama, mm-hmm. it cuts. Mm-hmm. So rather than actual, the slow final moment, you don't even get to see that it just happens in a way that feels out of our control and beyond the ability to accept Mm. absolutely necessary of horse because you cannot put the horse's head under the swamp for the sake of a shot yeah but that uh, that scene has the 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 power of uh, an unexpected death Mm. and at this point just as he meets Mauler Bastian refuses the call and quits the he begins to uh, suspect that they can hear him or he's the story is affected by him and it freaks him out understandably and he backs away from the book and you know in the hero's journey that's the refusal of the call it's quite late in the day for that but um it's a very prominent one because when he finally goes back in atreus at his absolute lowest point he's lost his uh his horse He's gotten terrible advice from the one smart person he was going for. He's got nothing left. He's about to sink into the swamp and the Gamorks bearing down on him. And that's when Falcor turns up. So it's kind of at your absolute lowest point, this beautiful white dragon will come out of the sky and pick you up and lift you up out of it. It's not realistic, but it's what we all hope for and dream of. Mm, yeah. And they don't. There's there's no um, there's no misleading about what Falcor is. He's a luck dragon. This mm. is this is a sheer stroke of luck that Atreo gets rescued this way. It's not well. He gets rescued because he's an awesome person, or he gets rescued because he's incredibly intelligent or massively strong. No, it's just luck. <laughs> <laughs> Mola, I bring terrible news. Did you know that the Empress is very ill? Not that it matters. But yes, actually, we don't care. If I don't save her, she'll die! There's a terrible nothing sweeping over the land! Don't you care about that? We don't even care whether or not we care. You know the worst part about inventing teleportation? Suddenly you're able to travel the whole galaxy and the first thing you learn is you're the last guy to invent teleportation. So Falcor rescues Atreyu and they talk. Uh, there's, a, there's a lovely little bonding session between them where uh, uh, Falcor orders he, I like children. Mm, and Atreyu says something like, To eat? For breakfast. <laughs> and he just laughs. Yeah. But he does have like a really scary, intimidating, massive face. And he's voiced by Alan Oppenheimer, who was man-at-arms in Masters of the Universe. He also voices uh, the Gamork, and Rockbiter, and the narrator. He has a fantastic voice. Oh, and Alan Oppenheimer also played Skeleton! <laughs> Silence, you funny fool! I've had it with your whining and bumbling. You're finished here, do you understand? He's still alive. He has a fantastic voice, and yes, he is still alive. And looks like an old man-at-arms. I was trying to... Sneak away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, no, no. I like children. For breakfast? <laughs> Never. I'm a luck dragon. My name is Falcor. And my name is... Atreyu. And you're on a quest. How'd you know that? 
You were unconscious. And you talked in your sleep. Could you get round and scratch behind my right ear? I could never quite reach it. And don't let me see your mangy hide around here again. And this is where they meet, uh, is it Engiwook and Urgle? Mm-hmm. Are they like supposed to be like little brownie people? They are small. There's some forced perspective going on here, there but it's is, kind yeah. of non-specific as to how big they actually are. They're not as small as the Night Hob, I don't think. Right. But they're not as big as a tray. So then, like, we're kind of introduced to the idea of three trials must ye go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and Urgle gives him the, one of the best lines in this, which is, it has to hurt if it's to heal. She puts something on one of his wounds and he's like, ow. Nice. That's my batwing wrath. There's eye of newt in there, tree mold, old lizard brains, scales from a rancid sea serpent. Just where did you and your dragon come from? What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? My name's Atreyu. I came here to find the Southern Ark. Oh! Here we go again. You've <laughs> come to the right place, my boy. I am somewhat of an expert on the Southern Oracle. It is my scientific speciality. It's my scientific speciality. (laughs) Why don't you sit down and be quiet for once? You keep quiet, wench. It's now nighter. So what's the the first trial of the Sphinxes where he uh, sees a a brave armoured knight going up to a pair of Sphinxes and getting fucking Mm vaporised? I think the point of this one, and I may have misunderstood, but it's, it's all about... How worthy are you? But you are your own judge. The Sphinxes look inside you to see whether you think you're worthy. And if deep down you don't think you are, bam, you're gone. Hmm. And what saves Atreyu, because there is a brief moment where it looks like they're going to zap him too, but he gathers all of his self-confidence and just pushes himself forward and manages to outrun the zapping. Yeah, I mean, I think when it came down to it, Atreyu does doubt himself a little bit and just manages yeah, to does. save himself with a bit of a forward roll. Yeah, but it's it, it it's sort of, he who hesitates is lost. But yeah, he goes in. Well, the, the other, the knight didn't hesitate and he got blown to hell. Yeah, no, he did. That was the point. Oh, when, he did? They, when they started to open their eyes, he stopped. Ah, uh, bad idea. Yeah. And also, I suppose you can't just run at the Sphinxes because they'll be able to judge your speed. And go, right, just going to aim slightly in front of well, you. Well, no, that's kind of the point, though. Anybody who just goes, yeah, I can do this, and then runs through. Believes in himself. Believes in himself, yeah. yeah. I suppose so. Unless they don't believe in themselves, but they believe in their abilities to run faster than the fact that because they don't believe in themselves in actuality, the laser blasts are coming. Indeed. So the measure of whether or not you're worthy is whether or not you can move faster than a sphinx's eye laser. Hmm. This could have got quite philosophical. <laughs> and yet. Hmm. Then there's the trial of the true self and the existential dread of the complete factual truth. Uh, he's um, shown a mirror and it, Ingiwook says that uh, people are confronted by their true selves and it's frightening for them. Kind men realise that they are in fact deep down cruel. And that is actually quite philosophically intimidating because you can know who you are, but to be told over and over again, no, 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 deep down, and you have to start really being introspective Mm. to look at how you're motivated 
at your core. Mm. I think it's a it's a poor phrasing, though. I'll be honest, because I think the way they set it up is this is this is your true self you're going to be confronted with there's a difference between your true self and your inner self because ultimately as with uh, what Sirius Black says in mm. uh, Order as of the Phoenix the everybody has good and bad in them everybody has kindness and cruelty in them it's what you manifest that's important and just because it's how you, we choose to act on our light and dark impulses. Exactly. Just because you realise that you have cruel impulses does not necessarily mean that your true self is a cruel person. Simply that we are all capable of that. Yeah, absolutely. But the imagery of being faced with that in the form of a mirror that reflects, in this case, uh, the overlay of Bastion mm. onto Atreyu is a very intriguing one. Well, the inverse is that Atreyu is very, very brave mm. and Bastion believes himself to be very, very cowardly and mm. too scared of doing anything. Yeah. The other uh, thing that occurred to me with this is that if Atreyu is... Uh, sorry, if Bastion is Atreyu's inner self, then That Atreyu suggests that Atreyu is Bastion's, Bastion's inner self. self, yeah. Could have explored that, didn't, but mm. could have. Yes. And it freaks Bastion out, and then they palette swap the uh, um, Sphinxes for the third trial, which is the Southern Oracle. They tell him that the Empress has to be renamed, I think. That's it, yeah. How to save Fantasia. Yeah. And then Atreyu flies on Falcor to look for a human child, and you get that fantastic flying montage music mm. as they uh, zoom over Fantasia. And this is probably the bit that people remember most from the film. Small point, by the way, uh, Atreyu is a human child. Mola says she's allergic to humans, and that's why she keeps sneezing on him. Mm. But specifically, what they mean is a human child who is not part of Fantasia. Yeah. But again, Atreyu's kind of boggled by this, and it feels like it's something that must happen all the time. We have to get a human child from outside of Fantasia. Everyone knows this. It's how we power our book. Mm. But then the nothing strikes, and they, uh, they got the uh, practical effect by putting coloured oils in water, which has got this really fantastic kind of cloud-like formations. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's angry and torrid and uh, really striking. And the sort of thing that they would these days do with CG. And I miss coloured oils in water. They, uh, they did something similar in, uh, in things like um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm, yeah, they used to do, I don't know if they still do, but there's a, a way of dyeing fabrics um, and other materials where you put coloured oils in water and then lay something on the top and it takes up the pattern of the how it's swirled and mm-hmm. um, I remember the first balloon I ever had was a white one that had been decorated like that so it had all these pink and purple and blue swirly patterns all over it mm. I was very little I let go of it and it blew away and I cried so the nothing strikes and uh, Atreyu ends up stuck on the edge of the world in a dying city waiting for the end and 
One of the most effective moments in the film comes when he sees all of the adventures he's already had uh, painted in murals on the walls, and it slowly takes you through, uh, you know, his his various scrapes and near misses, and it ends on just a giant roaring picture of the Gamork, and like when you're a kid, you're like, oh shit, because you know he's gonna be right there as a tray who turns around, and they really take their time turning around. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the scariest moments for me as a kid. The idea of having to turn around and face that. Mm. I was in Bastien's shoes at that stage. Yeah, the, the Gamork is really significant as well because the, the nothing is a conceptual threat. And for a child, a conceptual threat is a really hard one to grasp. Yeah. An actual wolf with teeth that's going to bite your head off is more terrifying. Yeah. Even though, really, the idea of a black cloud that's going to consume the entire universe is actually more terrifying. Oh, yeah. It's far more terrifying in the existential sense. And we've had this the weight of this sold by He Meets Rockbiter first, who is this sort of cheerful gourmet rock eater who talks about these other characters that we met early on, and they've just been dragged away into the nothing and his hands couldn't hold them. So you've got this jolly character laid low, and nothing's going to bring him back. So it kind of harkens back to the Swamps of Sadness. And you're told by the Gamork when Atreyu faces him what the nothing is. It's this despair and, and this lack of imagination. And it's all the hopes and dreams of mankind draining away. Which, again, that's that's existential crisis right there. And it's kind of reflected in films like Tomorrowland where they actually point a lens at the whole human race and go, there, see? You kind of want to die. And part of the human condition is that it cannot muster the strength to save itself. And that's one of the sources of our greatest fear, that we won't be able to cooperate in time to actually prevent our extinction. Mm. Well, this was one of the... I'm going to say this was one of Freud's theories, um, that humans are driven by two conflicting forces you've got the the survival impulse the 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 drive to live which comes from the animal part of us and then you've got the death force which is the human part of us knows too much it can see its own end and therefore it just goes well we might as well just get there as quickly as possible then so for some people your entire life is your animal body trying to keep you alive and your human mind trying to speed you towards your death. And as the Gamork says, the, uh, this isn't the edge of the world, that Fantasia has no boundary, that ultimately it's infinite. But why is Fantasia dying then? Because people have begun to lose their hopes and forget their dreams. So the nothing grows stronger. What is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. It is like a despair destroying this world. And I have been trying to help it. But why? Because people who have no hopes are easy to control and whoever has the control has the power 
holy shit, I've just realized The NeverEnding Story is a, one of the most significant films in my entire life. Instilling in me from an early age the importance of storytelling to recontextualize hope. My breath is stolen from me. I raise my head and survey the vast interior. There is nowhere to hide. I can see far into the distance. Under this roof which stretches above us, adorned with... I have never seen anything like it. Drawings on wood and stone I have seen. My friend Lamal once depicted an elaborate hunt upon the wall of a cliff, stretching out ten feet wide. The size of this painted ceiling leaves my jaw hanging. It is awe-inspiring and beyond beautiful. I can see the birth of Rama blossoming from a flower of stars, the water and the wind rushing in on either side to clothe her. At her feet is the bedrock of earth, and above her the sun blazes down. This is just one of the images that stretches across the ceiling. Each is part of the greater design. Each retells a part of the mythology of how our world came into being. I can only recognize about half of them. I am stilled, thinking about how much has been lost to us. Since this was first enjoyed by the people, now long gone from this land. New Century Tiger's Eye is available on Bandcamp in its entirety. But back to the Gamork. Atreyu bravely faces him and kills him, but there's something really haunting about the assurance of destruction that the wolf lays down beforehand. Like I said, the animal intelligence and uh, the the cold-hearted nature of being able to tell a human about all humans. That's reflected again in New Century. The, The theme of can we all pull together before we die, that's a major theme in New Century. And Seth, specifically in how he talks to uh, Thomas at the end of Arlington, examining humanity from a distance. Mm, yeah. The the ease with which Atreyu is able to dispatch the Gamork as well is almost... It's too easy. Because the Gamork represents despair, you conquer despair simply by fighting. Because Atreyu stands up and says, no, I'm not just going to lay down, the Gamork has nothing he can take him with. But it still doesn't help. The nothing is still coming. Mm. But it's the first step. It's the step out of the pit. Mm. Uh, And there's a a really neat moment here with a gimbal where uh, uh, Noah Hathaway was uh, hanging on a tree while they tilted the stage vertically but kept the camera on the same level as him so that Inception style it looks like he's just tilting upwards. Mm. That might have been thinking about it one of the places he was injured. And then the nothing wins. It destroys everything. It takes away Rockbider, it takes away the island, it takes away the land in general. And Falcor and Atreyu are left floating in space, unsure of where to go without direction. And then, as if by magic, the ivory tower appears with that wonderful piece of music. Which, again, this is where I think the symbolism of the, the triple spiral comes into it, because one of the core elements of the Celtic faith in terms of life and death is 
and the Celtic faith isn't the only one that has this idea, but this goddess who is constantly being brought back to nothing, to like a seed that's buried under frozen ground in the winter and then grows again. And the uh, the reincarnating god as well, which you could take Atreyu as being a, an example of, this idea that life grows out to a massive, boundaryless world and is then smashed to bits, but there's always this core of something that's left. And that's what they do. They make their way back to the ivory tower in order to try and start it again. And when they meet the childlike empress, she's only in it for this one and a half scene moment in the movie. Possibly, though, because of her prominence on the poster, which, by the way, is one of the best posters of the 80s. She really sells her importance in the film by conveying to Atreyu, first off, his importance and second off, Bastion's importance. And she sort of reaches out and breaks the fourth wall within the film and then breaks the fourth wall within the film within the film. That's like 16 walls. And she mentions that we were watching Bastion, which is their way of interpreting how the book incorporated the reader into the story. Now, it's important to actually read how this goes. Falcor and Atreyu go to the childlike empress in the book, who assures them they have brought her rescuer to her. Bastion suspects that the empress means him, but cannot bring himself to believe it. When Bastion refuses to speak a new name to prompt him into fulfilling his role as saviour, the empress herself locates the old man of Wandering Mountain, who possesses a book also entitled The Never-Ending Story, which the empress demands he read aloud. As he begins, Bastion is amazed to find that the book he is reading is repeating itself, beginning once again whenever the Empress reaches the old man. Only this time the story includes Bastion's meeting with Coriander, his theft of the book, and all his actions in the attic. Realising that the story will repeat itself forever without the intervention, Bastion names the Empress Moonchild and appears with her in Fantasia, where he restores its existence through his own imagination. The Empress has also given him the Orin on the back, with which he finds the inscription, Do what you wish. So then the book goes on. For each wish, Bastion loses a memory of his life as a human. So there's a whole like second half of the book where Bastion is in Fantasia. And again, you can see episode uh, two of uh, Never Ending Story Fantasia for that. We are back with another commissioned show that we probably wouldn't have done on our own, but now that we're in, I suspect it's going to be a great, great pleasure. This is the 1984 fantasy film directed by Wolfgang Peterson, fresh off his seminal German U-boat thriller Das Boot. After that lengthy trial of tension, Peterson wanted something sweet and innocent, and he got it, and we did too, and no, your ears are not deceiving you. I have, in fact, gone back to the beginning, and we're going to repeat this entire podcast again. No, we're not. But we could, if we were going to really make a point about this book. Simpson, this is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film The Never-Ending Story. So in the original text, Bastion is incorporated into the book and, and the reason it's never-ending, it is a never-ending story, is it it grows out and expands and begins again with every new child that reads and they have an influence on the story. Abed, quit cramming everything up its own ass. And the way they conveyed that in the film is by saying that children watching Bastion will 
become part of the greater story as well. And I don't really see how um, Michael Ende expected them to convey his original intentions when he signed over on this. Frankly, uh, when the childlike Empress looks with her sunken, almost skull-like eyes directly into the camera, crying, you know, calling out to Bastion, through us, it's unnerving enough as it is. And it's a wonderful, purposefully unsettling performance. A fusion of innocence and wisdom, and a touch of something that steps outside of storytelling, without having to clobber bewildered audiences with the meta-commentary. But the book continues in this way. For each wish, Bastian loses a memory, now that he's in the never-ending story, uh, of his life as a human. Unaware of this at first, Bastian goes through Fantasia, having adventures and telling stories while losing his memories. In spite of the warnings of Atreyu and Bastian's other friends, Bastian uses the Orin to create creatures and dangers for himself to conquer, which causes some negative side effects for the rest of Fantasia. Again, done properly, this would have been a really good movie. But it would absolutely have to be the sequel. But it needed to be really focused and they needed to have planned to do it as long as the first one was uh, successful. Not to be engaged in crappy five-year-long lawsuits with the, with the author. After encountering the wicked sorceress Jaid with a mysterious absence of the childlike empress, Bastian decides to take over Fantasia for himself, but is stopped by Atreyu, whom Bastian grievously wounds in battle. Ultimately, a repentant Bastion is, is reduced to two memories, those of his mother and father, and of his own name. After more adventures, Bastion must give up the memory of his parents to discover that his strongest wish is to be capable of love and to give love to others. So, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return, you say? Well, this is what grief is evidence of love, because if you don't, if you don't love something, then it can't hurt when you lose it. After much searching and on the verge of losing his final memory, Bastian is unable to find the water of life with which to leave Fantastica. It's called Fantastica in the book rather than Fantasia. Uh, with his memories. Here he is found by Atreyu. In remorse, Bastian lays down Orin at his friend's feet and Atreyu and Falcor enter Orin with him where the Water of Life demands to know Bastian's name and if Bastian has finished all the stories he began in his journey, which he has not. Only after Atreyu gives Bastian's name and promises to complete all the stories for him, does the Water of Life allow Bastian to return to his human world, along with some of the mystical waters. He returns to his father where he tells the full tale of his adventures and thus reconciles with him. Afterwards, Bastian confesses to Coriander, that's the man in the bookshop, about stealing the book and losing it, but Coriander denies ever owning such a book. Coriander reveals he has also been to Fantasia and that the book has likely moved into the hands of someone else. This, the book concludes, is another story and shall be told another time. I don't see how the author can be that furious with the ending of this film. Mm. Like, they captured the lion's share of the spirit of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the point that they were making is, you kids go and create your own stories, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you want to talk about some getting a film that doesn't get finished bullshit, speak to Philip Pullman. Yeah. But uh, uh, Bastian has to uh, call out the name of uh, the uh, childlike empress. That's all he has to do. It's, it's a token gesture to show that he's on board mm -hmm. with this. Yeah. If they're saying... It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if Tinkerbell can come back if you clap your hands and say, I do believe in fairies. And if you name something, you have power over it, but you also take responsibility for it. Yeah. 
And the name he calls out is Moonchild, which uh, apparently isn't actually the name of his mother at no. all. It's a name he found. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a little bit confused with something he says earlier on when Atreo is told that he has to name the Empress, hmm. and he says that he knows exactly what he'd name her. He would um, name her after his mother. Yeah. So it's like, well, lay that uh, down, and then every kid thinks that what he's yelling out into the... Uh, uh, air and the rain and the thunder is in fact his mother's name when actually it's just another name that he found so that's kind of botched but I kind of like the idea that he doesn't name the child like Empress after his mother although there is kind of a sweet na- the idea of rebirth there but if he's going to conduct an actual relationship with the child like Empress and she's been named after his mother that then calls into question the nature of that relationship yeah he's just replicating his relationship with his mother which is a method of him reconciling his grief but would mean that ultimately he'd have to let the child like Empress go yeah which to which the end of super 8 is just a really good version of this mm. just a much simpler more straightforward scene and also, Elle Fanning is not required to be the childlike empress yeah. in charge of the whole universe. Because that's an awful lot of weight for a 13-year-old to carry. Yeah. But what they're ultimately battling within this story is the idea that simply existing is enough. That the nothing leads to a state of actual metaphysical non-existence, whereby the fear that if we surrender our will no matter how much food we eat and air we breathe, we might, in fact, end up nothing inside. Sleep tight. <laughs> One grain of sand it is all that remains of my vast empire. Fantasia has totally disappeared? Yes. Everything's been in vain. No, it hasn't. Fantasia can arise in you. From your dreams and wishes, Bastion. How? Open your hand. are you going to wish for? I don't know. Then there will be no Fantasia anymore. How many wishes do I get? As many as you want. And the more wishes you make, the more magnificent Fantasia will become. Really? So Bastion gets a quiet little moment with the uh, childlike Empress and then he goes off flying on Falcor uh, and he's like, yeah, across Fantasia. And notably, it's a a restored Fantasia. He's able to bring it back to uh, everything that he's seen it was before and create new aspects of it. 
which involves bringing our tax back to life as well, notably. Just uh, so even though you do get that really really sad moment as a uh, you know as a child seeing the horse taken away, he's then restored at the end. So it's the happiest of happy endings. This doesn't necessarily vibe with the healthiest viewpoint on death, though. Rather than accepting that Artax is gone and accepting that Fantasia is gone and starting again and building something different, he goes backwards. But is that, given that the emphasis has been put on you're creating this from your imagination, is that wildly different from the people that you love you never really lose because they're always there in your heart and in your memory? He doesn't go down and interact with Artax, he just sees him. No, but he does become uh, delusional in the real world and believes that he's actually chasing bullies. <laughs> On a luck dragon. On a luck dragon. Yes, there is that. And then, as a, 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 a nasty little end point, uh, which is a catharsis for any kid who's ever been bullied, he gets to bully the bullies by chasing them down the street on a dragon. And I just... We were speculating on what would actually have happened if Falcor had just eaten, gobbled up one of those kids, munched them down like an old Twix, as as to whether Bassie would be like, Oh, God, that is not what I meant. Mm. Well, you brought a dragon to a bully fight. Yes, indeed. And I suspect that this is the bit that Michael Ender had the most problem with. Yeah. I suppose. Technically, it falls on Bastion to rise above these shitty bullies. Not literally. Uh, he does manage to do that anyway. Uh, to, to, to not bully back. In fact, all he's doing is perpetuating their shitty behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm tough now. I have a dragon. That's something we're facing now is uh, the bullied justifying their shitty actions and bullying other people by saying well I was maligned when I was younger I was called a nerd and I was treated badly so I'm now allowed to do whatever I want and say whatever I want to anybody exactly and it's it's not just the the people who have actually been stomped down on and and um, and harmed it's people you know you're looking at perception of um, aggression People who decide that the fact that no girl has ever agreed to go on a date with them is a good enough reason to take a flipping assault rifle into a school. End level bullying. Yeah. So it ends on the kind of the sweet moment of uh, uh, Bastion now in Fantasia, and we're told he had many more adventures, but that's another story. And the theme from the beginning of the film can like restarts again, but again because it feels like it's in the middle when it starts. It feels like it's simply resuming and then bringing us looping back. And this was a huge deal for for kids my age. Um, it was one of those uh, rental tapes that uh, that got you know it was always out at the uh, local video store. And I think you know when it was on TV, that was uh, one that got taped and then replayed and replayed and replayed. There was a deeply confusing production hitch in 2014 when the 30-year anniversary edition of the Blu-ray was released with a promised entirely remastered print. It has a nine-minute featurette on exactly how this remastering was achieved, with passionate professionals going through every frame of the story, cleaning, removing dust from the gate, colour grading as they went to recreate the best version it could ever be. And the Blu-ray released with the same version we got in 2010. 
The studio released an apology and stated that only the sequel, Never Ending Story 2, the next chapter, got the remaster and that their promise was made in error. But that doesn't match up with all that's happening in this nine-minute featurette where it's clearly the original that's being remastered. My guess would be that the remaster of the 1984 film actually happened and some boob pressed the 30th anniversary discs with the wrong damn file in the channel, creating 10,000 botched Blu-rays that got shipped out and it was too expensive to do a recall, so they're just sitting on this remaster until a possible 4K disc release, which we'll get if we are very, very, very lucky. Michael Ende died in 1995 a year after that crappy third film, The NeverEnding Story 3, Return to Fantasia, or NeverEnding Story 3, Escape from Fantasia, which diverged wildly from his book, but six years before the crappy Canadian-produced TV series of TV movies, Tales from the NeverEnding Story, which diverged wildly from his book. That's the one where Atreyu goes into the human world. What? If this is going to be remade, I have three suggestions. Put some money into it, Stick to the book. Do it in two theatrically released parts. However, I'm not sure if you could even release something as pure as this is now or ever again. It's simply too innocent and traditional for tech-savvy kids to wholly embrace. That's not a crack at modern kids. They are ultimately wiser than we were at that age. Wiser than this film needs them to be. They have other stories to voice and elaborate upon and continue the ethos laid down by this one, which is as it should be. The never-ending story fulfilled its purpose, which is to perpetuate these wonderful worlds. This means that this first 1984 film, divorced from the book and the sequels and the TV specials, stands as a shining little pearl waiting to be discovered by future generations of inquisitive minds. Can you think of a way that they could remake it? No, not really. Because As it is? I Honestly, thinking what's the closest that you could do for a modern audience, honestly, Ready Player One is not far off. It's, it's not got that sense of an imagination-filled linear story that goes on and on and on and on and on. It's more that sense of all of these imagined images and music and settings are in this one pool and everybody gets to dip into them and take out what they want to use in any given moment and those kids will grow up and they will add to that pool and then the generation after them will take from that and then come up with their own ideas so it's sort of this endlessly recycling fountain of imagination and and concepts but the uh, the drawback with Ready Player One is that it implies we're never going to get away from the 80s. There will always be Aha and the Back to the Future car. This is true. And when I say Ready Player One, by the way, can I just clarify? I the, mean film. the film, not the book. The other drawback is that it would appear video games in the future, the ones that everyone takes part in, are an extension less of narrative-driven story games more of games as service, the current AAA model. So, yay for the future. But honestly, it feels like, as is so many uh, examples, the parallel, the best parallel is actually the Lego movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's a, a movie that all children in the current younger generation can vibe with. 
And I'm going to climb down from my own ivory tower now to say a huge, huge thank you to our special $15 sponsors who get name-checked each week. So, thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Rune Lord Firionel, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Shisham. And a special extra big thank you to Joel Robinson, who commissioned this show for you guys. His original request was Cloud Atlas. We found we couldn't do that one. Not to the level of satisfaction that we want to provide. And we hope you are fully satisfied with this one, Joel. And if you'd like to commission a show, get in touch. Next week, it is time to once again make the chimichangas with Deadpool 2. So until next week, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.